0: Good morning, good morning, good morning, Discover Church. How's everybody feeling today? Man, oh man, it's so good to see you. I'm glad you were here today. Welcome to week two of our preaching series called God Didn't Say That. It's a teaching series where we are unpacking five popular untrue statements and trying to trying to see what is true and how we need to orient our lives around it. Because if we orient our lives around these five very popular truths, we'll either end up doing something that is at at least very, very silly, or we could end up doing something that is super, super harmful to ourselves or those around us. And so we're unpacking this, and I'm glad that you're with us today. I'm really excited about our worship night tonight. I hope that you will come join us. It's going to be a good time. I want to give you a quick update. Some of you may or may not know, uh, Pastor Chris is doing his Ironman today in Chattanooga. Chattanooga, and I am looking on the app right now, and he is currently uh, about halfway through mile 42 of his bike ride. Uh, as you were getting up this morning, uh, he got in the, in the water at about eight o'clock this morning and swam for a lot longer than I've ever swam, and uh, he's already 40-something miles into a hundred and some odd mile bike ride, and then he's going to run a marathon. So uh, sometime around 7.30 or so when we're in the middle of our worship night, he'll finally be done with his work for the day. And uh, so anyway, if you think of it, pray for him, excited for him, proud of him. Takes a lot of dedication, commitment to do something like that. And uh, just a lot, little bit of crazy. I'm not crazy enough to do that. Uh, listen, if this is your first time with us, my name's Journey, and it's so good to see you. Uh, hey, listen, if you are new with us, on the bottom of your handout, would you fill out the bottom portion of that at the end of the service? We're gonna pass some buckets around. We'd love to connect with you, get to know you, or come say hello. I'll be standing right up here and love to be able to meet you. Last week, we unpacked this statement that God helps those who help themselves, and what we learned is that, um, that that's not really true that as you're gonna see in the case with every single one of these, these five statements that we're gonna unpack, that there are some truths in it. There's some things about them that are true, but they're not fully true, and there they're leads to some weird stuff. And so what we learned last week is that um, a better statement would be to say that God helps those who are helpless. And you have to go back and watch it. I encourage you to do that. Today, we're going to talk about a, a statement that is uh, usually said amongst church people. Matter of fact, I have never heard someone outside of the church ever say this statement. So let me just kind of stay from the, from the jump, if you're here today and you're not really a Jesus person, you're not really sure about church, man, let me just tell you, I'm really glad that you're here. I hope that you'll find that you're among friends today because you've walked into a room about a bunch of messed up, jacked up people. And you might be the most put together person in the room. Um, but we just we just realized that there's some real hope in Jesus. And there was a time where we all had questions about Jesus and the church and what this thing is all about. So if you've got questions or doubts or curiosities, man, you are among good company today. If you are here and you are a Jesus person, if you're a church person, I'm just going to tell you, um, buckle up. Because this one is going to challenge you. And so for all of my church folks who've been walking, I'm gonna say this statement just a second, and you're gonna hear this, and you're gonna go, oh yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I believe that. Um, there's gonna be some assumptions and some things that are gonna challenge you today. And for all of my people who aren't sure about Jesus yet, man, I, I wanna unpack this. This isn't necessarily directed at you, the message today, but I do believe it's something that you've probably heard before, and I wanna unpack it so that you can see the heart of God, and what God really intends for us. The title of our message today is, uh, is really this statement. And, and like I said, it's, it's, it's a lot of you are probably like me if you grew up in church. You were raised to believe that this thing is true. Um, you were taught that it was true. You were taught that this is how God operates, how Jesus operates, and this is how God wants us to operate. Um, but as I have gotten a little bit older, as I've, as I've dived into God's word myself, I begin to realize that this statement is not really true. And here's the statement. It's the title of our message. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Have you ever heard that before? Now, some of you right now are going, he said, what now? Because that's, that, that's the gospel right there. That's what you're supposed to do. Here's the, here's the deal uh, with this statement. Th- this statement is uh, really tricky, because it is made up of two statements that are absolutely true, but when you put them together, it creates a distorted picture of the gospel in the heart of, the heart of Jesus. It is true that, that we should, especially if you are a Jesus person, you should absolutely love sinners. It is also true, especially if you are a Jesus person, that you should absolutely hate sin. But when you put these two things together and create a cohesive thought, it creates all kinds of problems. Namely, it leads people to to some some wrong assumptions. All right, now before I go much further, I wanna make sure I'm defining some terms so that we can all start off on the same playing field today. Uh, what, What is sin? How do we define sin? Well, sin is anything that we do that is in violation or contradiction or opposition to God's word or God's will. So anytime you do something, that violates what God says is the way that we're supposed to do it. Or you violate, you do something that is the opposite of what God has led you to do, how he's leading you, where he's leading you to go. Anytime you do the opposite of that, you violate God's law and that is sin. And a sinner, well, a sinner is just anyone who has ever sinned, okay? Now, some of you might think today, well, I think I'm good. I mean, I'm a pretty good person, I saw the person next to me walk in and I know I'm better than them. Some of you rode in the car with somebody today and when you're hearing me talk, you're going, listen, I live in the house with that person and I for darn sure know I'm, I'm, I'm doing better than they are. All right, but here's the deal, just a quick test. How many of you have ever lied? Raise your hand. All right. Everyone whose hand is not currently raised, now you can raise your hand because you have lied. All right, that's one of the Ten Commandments, by the way, one of God's, like, basic starter pack of, of all the right things we're supposed to do. Um, and so it doesn't matter. Like, it, it, sin can be anything as small as a little white lie. Uh, it could be as, you know, insignificant as, you know, not telling the whole truth about something uh, or as, like, really big, like murder or some, you know, super violent, terrible thing, Right. Sin could be anywhere on that spectrum, but according to God's standards, it doesn't matter how big or small you think that it is, any sin sent Jesus to the cross to die for humanity because any sin separates us from God, okay? So now that we're starting on the level playing field, that's sin, that's what sinners are. Love the sinner hate the sin, why does it create problems? Well, it leads people to one of two conclusions. The first conclusion that it often leads people to make, if you believe this statement to be true, is it'll oftentimes lead people to think that, that well, there's really no real problem with sin. Sin's not really that big of a deal. It'll make people think that sin doesn't really matter. I mean, at the end of the day, if if you believe this this statement, I need to love the sinner, then it means that we always kind of walk around, we always just kind of look past people's sin, that sin doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter how people live. It doesn't matter what people think. It doesn't matter what people do. It doesn't matter how people handle their money, where they go, what they talk about, what they consume inside their bodies, how they handle their relationships. Um, It it doesn't matter how they handle themselves at work or with with coworkers or in the neighborhood with their spouse, with their kids, none of it matters because we're supposed to love the sinner, right? But God paints a different picture than that, that sin does matter. And God talks about sin. And so at some level, we as Jesus people need to figure out how to talk about sin. Here's the second problem that it creates. It leads people um, to, to a hypocritical judgmental attitude, particularly when you get get you begin to camp on the hate the sin part of it then what happens is as you begin to look around and try to find out other people's sins so that you can hate their sin for them and what happens oftentimes is, is that it creates this dynamic where, uh, at least in my experience, uh, in my own life, when I, when I think about love the sinner, hate the sin, it has oftentimes led me to places like, I love you so much. I love you, I love you, I love you. Now, let me figure out what's going on in your life that I'm not doing so I can tell you about how wrong that is. I'm not going to talk about the stuff in my life that I'm doing because, well, we're not talking about me, we're talking about you right now. And what happens is it creates this, this hypocritical judgmental attitude that is so remarkably distasteful to people. In his groundbreaking book, Unchristian, David Kinnaman revealed that an incredible number of people in the world today view Christians as, and I quote, judgmental, hypocritical, too political, out of touch, insensitive, boring, and anti-homosexual. Now, here's the deal. We there's a, there's a lot of truth to the perception that people have of Jesus' people. And a lot of it is stuff that we've earned and a lot of it is because we have totally gotten this thing wrong. We've totally gotten this thing backwards because what happens was a lot of people is, is they will hear a, a quote like this out of this book and, and, and sometimes we'll, go, we'll wear it as a badge of honor. Oh, that's right. I am out of touch. If I have to be in touch to believe this and think that and follow those things and do what they say, if I'm in touch, and I don't want to be in touch. It's like that idea If this is wrong, then I don't want to be right. But here's the problem. When we begin to live this way, it paints a distorted image of who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. And it causes a lot of people to think and believe something that Gandhi once said when Gandhi said, if it weren't for Christians, I'd be a Christian. You see, here's the problem. A lot of people in the church get this totally wrong because we we spend all of our time looking at other people's lives and rarely spend any time looking at our own. Why? Because I'm supposed to love the sinner and I'm supposed to hate their sin but I want to unpack that and I want to dismantle that today. So what are we, what are Jesus people supposed to do? How are people supposed to treat people who believe and behave differently than me? How am I supposed to act or react when people do things that God's word clearly defines as sin? And isn't it my job as a Christian to confront people in their sin? These are common questions that a lot of Jesus people have. And I want to dive into God's word today to begin to unpack this. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As you turn there, let me give you a little bit of context about, uh, Corinth and what's going on in this letter that the apostle Paul wrote. Corinth was the, uh, first century version of Vegas today. Uh, it was, it, it was, it was like what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Corinth had a reputation as a place of parties and drunkenness and all sorts of sexual immorality. I've been to Corinth. I've seen uh, the, the 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 temple ruins of uh, the, to to the goddess Aphrodite, which was um, all about the god of sex and all of this stuff, and learned about the things that have happened there. The second thing you need to know is that the Apostle Paul. This is for all my Bible junkies out there. The Apostle Paul started the church in Corinth uh, during his second missionary journey. He was there about eighteen months, and then he left. And it's in his third missionary journey that he writes this letter of First Corinthians. And the third thing that you need to know is you need to keep in mind that the Jesus movement in that day was still under Roman government. So they didn't have a bunch of big gatherings like this, at least not in Corinth. The church in the early days uh, in the, of the Jesus movement would have been like house churches. So th- this is stuff that's a small setting. It's a small environment and uh, and people are gathering in people's homes for what's going on. And Paul opens up first Corinthians chapter five, and he's talking about some of the nonsense that's happening in Corinth. Now I'm just going to embrace you, uh, because this next part is a little bit PG 13 is what Paul writes. If you're with me, first Corinthians chapter five, let me hear you say amen. amen. Here it is. Verse one, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Paul's saying, I ain't even there. But somebody has told somebody that told somebody that told me that there is some some weird stuff happening, not in Corinth per se, but in the church of Corinth. And then he qualifies it and he says, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles. He's saying, "What, what I heard that is happening is so twisted that the Corinthian folks don't even do this. The Corinthian folks will look at that and go, oh yeah, that's weird. And this is what's happening, that a man has his father's wife. He says, somebody told me that while y'all are gathering up for church, some dude is in a back corner with his stepmom doing stuff. Now, a lot of people talk about, oh, I wish we could just go back to church in the old days, the first century. Can I just tell you something? Lord, if I'm lying, I'm dying. Please don't ever let this happen. Lord, I pray I never have to stand on this, on this stadium, on this podium, on this stage, whatever I'm standing on, and have to tell my church, bro, stop doing that with your stepmom while church is happening. Lord, please, I don't ask for much. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. That's what Paul is writing to address. And he's angry and he's embarrassed. He's embarrassed that this stuff is happening because these are people that have supposedly surrendered their life to Jesus. These are people who have supposedly said, man, it's Jesus and that's it. These are people who are supposedly talked about, man, I love Jesus with everything that I've got. Yet this dude and his stepmom in the back of the, in the, and doing the, and remember this is a house church. It's not like nobody knows. They all know. You can't hide that. And Paul's mad not only that it's happening, but he's mad that nobody in the church has done anything about it. He says this, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. He's basically saying, you talk about how you're, oh, Paul, we were, we're letting you know we're doing so good. Man, we are so tight to Jesus. Man, we've never been closer to Jesus. We're so, woo, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Yes, we're so good. Y'all acting like y'all are all put together spiritually, but this is happening under the walls and the roof of where the church is and ain't nobody said anything about it. And then he says, uh, where am I? I'm in verse three. For indeed I, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, I've already judged. He's saying, listen, I'm not even there, but I love y'all. I'm present with you spiritually. Like I care about y'all. I started that thing. I turned it over to y'all and trusted y'all with it. I'm not even there, but I'm with you in spirit. And I'm telling you that that him who has done this deed, I've already judged him. He's like, I... Y'all need to understand. There are some things that you need to get upset about. There are some things that you need to be willing to judge and go. That's not right. Notice what he says next in verse five. Deliver such a one as to, uh, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Basically, he's saying you may not judge him, but I will. And in the name of Jesus, y'all need to tell that dude and his stepmom. You need to spend. You, you need to get up out of here for a little bit. You go, oh, that that doesn't sound very grace-filled, very, you know, that just, you know, we don't need to do that. I want you to notice why. Paul answers why. Why, Paul, would you do that? Why would you tell somebody who is a Christian who is struggling in something that, that they might need to spend some time outside of the walls of our little house church for a little bit to work on some things? He tells us why. That his spirit... May be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You know what he's saying? He's saying, You need, you, somebody needs to stand up to this dude and say, Listen, we don't do that here. That may happen out there, but that's not how we operate. We are supposed to be different. And he needs to know that it's not okay. And you're not doing him any favors by ignoring it and go, well, we'll just love the sinner, hate what he's doing, wish he wouldn't do it in so-and-so's bedroom while we're all trying to have church, but, you know, love the sinner. What Paul does next, he spends the next few verses and he, he talks about sin and he uses the metaphor of leaven, which is yeast, as, as, as what happens with sin. You know, if you've ever made bread, I like to make, every Christmas, I like to make some cinnamon rolls because I'm a cinnamon roll junkie and I, it's a labor of love. Don't ask me to make them for you because if I make them, I'm eating them. All right, um, but you put a little yeast into a lump of dough and you let it sit. And what happens is, is it, it changes the molecular structure of the dough and it begins to react chemically to do things that it would not normally do unless the yeast had been introduced to it. And what he does, is he talks about that's what sin does. That's what sin does in someone's life, that when sin is introduced into the life of someone who proclaims to be a follower of Jesus, then it causes them to do things and become something that they should not normally do and should not normally become. He also uses the same metaphor, by the way, to talk about sin not only in the individual, but sin in the church. That when we allow sin to be in the church, it creates a distortion that messes with the view that the outside world sees when they look at the church. And then Paul says in verse nine, and as he writes this, he creates, um, he, he, he clarifies something that was obviously a misunderstanding. Verse nine, he said, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Now, we don't know when he wrote his other thing. We don't have that. Um, but he, at some point he had written something else before he wrote first Corinthians to them. And he said, listen, y'all don't need to hang out with sexually immoral people. And basically the Christians had taken this as like, oh, okay, okay. Well, we're in Corinth and like, all we got to do is look out the window and go sexually immoral, sexually immoral, doing what with who? And I can't even say that because I'm in church and right. Like it is, I'm in Corinth. It's not hard to find people who are sexually immoral. And so what was happening was, is the Christians in Corinth were going, okay, Paul, we got it. That's exactly what we'll do. We will come into our little Christian bubble, us four and no more. We will bury our heads in the sand and we ain't going to interact with anybody that is out there because we don't want to be like them. We, we, we don't want, we don't want their stuff to rub off on us that we might become unclean or something wrong like that. So we'll just, we'll just get in our little Christian bubble, we'll get in our little Christian compound, and we'll just stay right here with all of our Christian friends, and my Christian kids will only hang out with other Christian kids, and we'll never go to, go see Christian movies, and we'll never go to Christian restaurants, and we'll never go to Christian this and Christian that, and we'll just create our own little subculture where all we'll ever do is just our own little Christian things. But notice what Paul says, verse 10. Yet I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral of this world. So now what he's saying is, is here's what you got to understand. I didn't mean that you don't hang out with the sexually immoral of this world. When he says of this world, he's talking about people who are not born again. He's talking about people who are not followers of Jesus. He's talking about unbelievers and non-Christians. He said, I certainly didn't mean that you don't hang out with people who don't yet know Jesus who are sexually immoral. He goes on and he says, um, or people who are covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out to the world. He said, listen, I didn't mean that you don't go out there. You know, you've got to go out there to tell people about Jesus. So if you thought I meant just bury your head in the sand and just do your little Christian compound thing, y'all got it twisted. Instead, notice what he says, verse 11. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. Basically, what he's saying now is, he's saying, listen, I didn't tell you not to hang out with sexually immoral people out there. What I intended is that you don't hang out with sexually immoral people who are in here And not only don't hang out with brothers and sisters in Christ who are sexually immoral, who are covetous, idolaters, revelers, drunkards, and extortioners, not to even eat with such a person. He's saying, listen, if you have those kinds of people inside the walls of the church... He's not talking about somebody who's still kind of in the process of figuring out how to follow Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that for the people who are in the church who proclaim to be followers of Jesus, who say, yes, I love Jesus and I'm following him, but their life still models a life of uncontrollable sin. He's saying you need to create some distance with them. He's saying, you need, you need to not eat with them. And in their culture, when he says eat with them, he doesn't mean that you can't, can't talk to them. He doesn't mean that you have to ghost them, not text them, not respond to them, ignore them. No. He's saying, don't have fellowship with them. Don't hang out with them. If they, if they are in your, if they're in your running group and, and, and you do your thing and that's who you always go hang out with, he's saying, listen, you need to create some distance between you and them in the name of Jesus. And here's why. Because when you as a Jesus person, Hang out with another Jesus person who proclaims to love and follow Jesus, who is sexually immoral, doesn't in any way allow God's word to define how they handle their sexual acts with other people, especially those that they're not married to. When you hang out with Jesus people who desire and seek other people's stuff, I I wish I had that instead of them because they're covetous. If you hang out with Jesus people who orient their lives around things in such a way that people can't even tell that they follow Jesus, which is what it means to be an idolater. If you hang out with Jesus people who are criticizing people in cruel and mean ways, which is what it means to be a reveler. If you hang out with Jesus people who are consistently getting drunk, and if you're hanging out with Jesus people who use their power and influence to get money for their own benefit, then what you are doing is creating a very confusing message to the people that are close to you but far from God about the power and the potential of what Jesus can do in the life of a person. He's saying, listen, these kinds of things should not be true amongst the church. These things can be true amongst people who are outside of the church, but of the people who were part of the church, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You heard this message. You heard how he rose from the grave. You saw miracles performed and people set free and demons cast out. Yet you continue to live with just enough Jesus to hope that it means that you don't go to hell, but you're not pursuing Jesus. So that you can experience the radically amazing and powerful and miraculous things that he can do in your life. When you begin to hang out with those people, people start asking, well, 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 who is this Jesus and what is Jesus really capable of? And why would I want what they are selling when there's nothing about their life that looks any different than mine? He closes by saying, for what have I to do to judge those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? He's saying, what do I have to do to judge with, it's not my job to judge people who are not in the church, who don't proclaim to love and follow Jesus. They don't believe like we believe. So why would I expect them to behave like Jesus wants us to behave? However, Do you not judge those who are inside? Do you not understand that it's your responsibility amongst the church to create some, in a loving way, to create some accountability so that we can become more Christ-like in the way that we live our lives? You go, man, Jern, this is like, ooh. I don't like it when you preach that way. Can I tell you the reason why I preach this way? Because if what I just described describes a portion or area of your life, it is an area of your life where you are shortchanged in the work of God in your life. And when the devil says that he comes to steal, kill and destroy, he will do it by making you think you got enough, Jesus, you don't need any more. When you begin to think that way and live that way, you handcuff the spirit of God from working in your life to restore relationships and to set you free from bondage and to break the chains of addiction and to cause you to continue to live with anxiety and depression and the cloud, the sky is falling and, and, and to never be able to feel like you can live in the sense when Jesus said in the end of that verse in John chapter 10, that I've come to that you may have life and have it more abundantly. That's why I preach that way, not because I'm mad at you but it's because I love you because God loves you and God wants something better for you than the counterfeit things that the world is offering you. He closes with this last verse in verse 13. He says, but those who are outside God judges, therefore put away the evil person. The evil person, by the way, he's referencing is not not the person who is outside the church. He's saying the evil person is the person who is in the church that proclaims to follow Jesus, but nothing in their life is oriented to reflect that Jesus has ever touched their life. So many churches get this backwards. So many Christians get this backwards. We oftentimes spend most of our lives looking out at the world and going, I can't believe you're doing that. I can't believe you voted this way. I can't believe you think that and they can do this and they can do that. And these things are okay. There's something totally wrong with all of you. And what, meanwhile, while we're inside the church, we hear about things that, 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 that may or may not be going on in people's lives, but we never talk about the stuff that's going on in our lives. We never get honest about the patterns of sin in our own life because we just love the sinner. We love the sinner and, and love and grace and harmony and unity. And, you know, let's all just, just hug and, and let, let, let's, let's not go through the process of refining. Let's not go through the process of purifying because it hurts. It's painful. It gets hot. I don't like that. I don't like people in my business. I don't like people knowing too much of my stuff. I, I you know, that's a little too close. I don't want people judging me. Da, da, da. Can I tell you that? God is trying to convey that the role of the church is to walk in such closeness and such trust that we can be honest about where we're struggling, not so that we can feel the guilt of shame and condemnation as a lot of churches and a lot of Christians have done, by the way. But when they've when they done all kinds of terrible things to point things out in people, instead of loving people and recognizing that I got issues too, we all need the power of Jesus in our life. We need to be able to live in such a way that we can be honest about the things that we're struggling with. Love the sinner, hate the sin. No, I think the better way for us to think about it is recognizing that that idea, that statement is never once recorded in scripture. Love the sinner is never recorded in scripture. But here's what is recorded in scripture when Jesus says that you should love the Lord with all your God, God with all your heart, soul and mind and you will love your neighbor. You see, that's what we need to do. And here's the reason why this is so dangerous. Love the sinner. You know what that does? It creates an automatic separation, a dividing line between me and them. Because I may not struggle with the stuff they struggle with and I can justify the stuff that I struggle with so that makes me more holy and allows me to be more righteous and so that I can stand up in a higher elevation and look down on those people, those sinners. But instead, Jesus says to love your neighbor and the distinction is so incredibly critical that we understand this because when we say love your neighbor, we recognize that none of us are better and none of us are worse. That the ground at the foot of the cross is level and it's even and we all need Jesus just the same. And when I come and interact with you, I'm not coming for some high and holier than thou and self-righteous, judgmental, hypocritical attitude. I'm coming to the table like, listen, man, you're my neighbor. You need Jesus as much as I do. Instead of talking about how much what you did and what you did wrong, let me tell you about what Jesus is doing in my life and how he's changing me and making me a better man. Well, how do we do this? I and mean, Paul says you're supposed to judge believers, right? How do we do this? Well, he gives us some insight in Galatians chapter five. You can turn there if you'd like. In Galatians chapter five, he says this, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, such a one, uh, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, let you also be tempted. He's saying, listen, okay. So when you recognize that someone is caught in sin, someone has has fallen and been overtaken by sin, they, they, a pattern of sin has shown up and, and blown up their life don't do what a lot of churches have done before. And I've heard so many tragic stories about this where churches have literally said, all right, come on up here, Joe and Nancy Smith. Listen, now we heard what y'all did last week. Why don't you tell everybody? I, this has happened. This has happened in churches all across our country. And they talk about what they did. And then the church responds in shame and condemnation and guilt. And how dare you? That's not, that's not a spirit of gentleness, That's an evil spirit. That's a belittling spirit. That's a condemning spirit, and those things are the opposite of the gospel of Jesus. He goes on to say, tells us how we're supposed to do this. Now, he says, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Instead of pointing the finger and condemning them, and and, and you know doing all that stuff in a spirit of gentleness, come alongside them and help carry the burden that they're carrying. Don't put weights on them of, of guilt and shame and condemnation so that they feel like less of a person. No, 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 they are already bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for them. They are a royal heir, a royal priesthood. They are a son or daughter of the most high king. They are just as valuable as you are. Don't you dare make them feel like less than what the king of kings and Lord of lords paid his life to find the value and worth of their life. Instead, come alongside of them in a spirit of gentleness and say, hey, let me help you with this. then he gives some instruction on how to do this. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear their own load. Basically, what he's saying is, is you you need to check yourself. Before you, 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 you've noticed that another brother or sister in Christ has fallen into sin. Before you go run to the rescue and act like you're Jesus, first, check yourself. Make sure that you don't have any things in your life that are unconfessed, unconfessed any, any areas of sin in your life. Because when you do that, when you, when you take on your high and holy, righteous, holier-than-thou horse and you start running to them, He says, you'll start thinking of yourself something that you're not and you deceive yourself. We first need to be responsible for our own stuff. And then we go and help a brother or sister in Christ to try to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. If you wanna read more about what that looks like, you can go to Matthew 18. I don't have time to unpack all that today, but go read Matthew 18 this week when Jesus talks about how we're supposed to deal with someone who has sinned against us. So we come back to this statement. Instead of saying love the sinner and hate the sin, it would be more accurate if we said love your neighbor and hate your sin. Or put it in another words, hate your own sin. See, before we we jump in and try to help somebody, we need to develop a hatred for the sin in our own life. Begin to experience the power of God's grace, God's love, God's forgiveness, God's transformational power in our lives to take us from a person who is caught up in this pattern of sin and by God's grace and the victory of the cross and the empty grave and the the power of community in our lives helping us with this, we begin to experience victory. We need to love our neighbor. We need to hate our own sin. And the final element, which really, paints the complete picture now of what Jesus wants for us. After you've loved your neighbor and hated your sin, then, and only then, confront your fellow Christian. Now, this is where we so oftentimes get this wrong. I'm going to give you some things to put some handles on it, but before I do, I want to help you see the significance of the sequence of this and why it's important. Because when we love your neighbor, what it means is, is that I accept and served everyone. Because I recognize that all of us have a past, myself included. I, I don't come in a, in a spirit of condemnation or judgment or already just assuming you are a sinner, even though you are and I am. I just assume that, that you're my neighbor. Before I met Jesus, I needed just as much help as you do. And now that I've met Jesus, I need more help than you do because now there's a standard whereby God wants me to live my life by it. When you hate your own sin, it means that you confess to God and to those that you've sinned against. You seek their forgiveness and then you also accept or or hand out or, or display forgiveness to others when they come and do the same to you. Holding on to grudges and unforgiveness is sin unto itself. And when we confront our fellow Christians, we do so prayerfully being mindful of the relationship that we have with that person. I wanna close today by just kind of unpacking this idea of confronting fellow Christians because, man, can I just say, I've screwed this up so many times because I believed and loved the sinner, hate the sin. There's been times as a pastor where I've confronted somebody in an area of sin that um, I thought I had enough of a relationship with them and, um, uh, and, and certainly they had, chosen to be a part of our church and so in so doing this and listen I'm trusting you as my pastor but what became clear is I confronted them in some things that they saw me as a friend but not a pastor now part of that I don't fully understand because it, God has given me a mandate as as the pastor of Discover Church that when you when you plant your anchor here at Discover Church, when you when you say, Man, this is the church that we're going to be a part of, God has given me a responsibility to care for your soul. That doesn't give me a, a, a hall pass to just come and start throwing hate and condemnation and judgment on you. No, at time it means encouragement. At time it means training you uh, so that you can walk in the purpose God has for you. And at times it means confronting you in an area of sin. And so so there's some times where I don't fully understand how someone would choose to be a part of our church. They would choose to have me as their pastor. And then when their pastor comes to try to confront them in some stuff that is clearly out of alignment with God's word, they draw a really hard line in the sand and say, I like to have you as my friend, but I don't wanna have you as my pastor. Here's the deal. I've had to realize that some people aren't, aren't ready for me to be a pastor in their life because some people haven't positioned Jesus as the Lord of their life. And so when, when Jesus sends me as, his, as one of his, his people to care for the people, they're not ready for that. And that's okay. I've had to come to terms with that. I've had times in friend relationships and family relationships where I I responded out of this love the sin or hate the sin thing and it just totally blew up. At times it blew up a relationship and I've had situations in my family where it caused someone to have more distance apart from their relationship with God. I've had situations where people that I love and care about tell me about something that they have done And the basic message is, I love you, I love you, I love you. I'm sorry this has happened. I love you, I love you, I love you, but love the sinner, but here's the but. And here comes the judgment. With all of the best intentions and the the best heart motives and heart attitude about it, I'm trying to love the sinner and hate the sin, but all they hear is judgment and condemnation. I'd be willing to bet that if you've ever had conversations like this, you've probably experienced something similar. And I would be really willing to bet the reason why you experienced something similar is that you have not learned the lesson yet that I have had to learn that sometimes God doesn't need you to speak for him. Sometimes it's important that we remember we are not the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's important to remember that God doesn't need us. But then there are other times where we watch people that we love and care about, we have close relationship with, choose to continue to live in a pattern of sin. And sometimes we need to realize that God has positioned us for such a time to restore brother or sister in Christ in a spirit of gentleness. But how do we do this? How do we know when we're supposed to speak up and we're supposed to shut up? Well, here's four questions that I've learned to ask, and maybe this will be helpful for you. Questions to ask before you confront somebody. Number one, does this person love Jesus? Can I tell you, if this person that you're thinking about, if they don't love Jesus, then God has not called you to confront them because they're not gonna see the forest through the trees. Jesus does not confront us in our sin before he died for us on the cross. Here's question number two. Does this person want to grow spiritually? Is this a person who um, their life and the patterns and the disciplines of their life have modeled that they desire to continue to grow in their relationship with Jesus? or is this person like unfortunately a lot of christians are i got just enough jesus to make sure i don't get i don't go to hell but you know i mean that's enough i don't need any more here's a third question am i a person that they look to for spiritual direction can i tell you this is the question that has tripped me up a lot Because I've had to come to terms with the fact that even though that I'm the pastor of this church, there's a lot of people that don't want to look to me for spiritual direction. I don't take it personally. It's not a personal thing, but I'm wrestling. I'm trying to figure out, God, how do I pastor people who only want me to be their friend? I want to be friends with people, but what's my role as the one? You've charged me as the spiritual watchdog for their soul. Can I tell you, it's really bitten my butt in non-church-related relationships where I thought that because I'm a pastor, it's my job to speak into certain things. But that relationship, that person never viewed me as a spiritual influence in their life. Here's the last question. Am I equally concerned about my own sin? Whatever it is that I see in somebody else's life that clearly doesn't match up or add up to God's word. It bothers me. I'm concerned about what it's gonna mean for their life, what's gonna mean for their kids or their spouse or their career, their walk with Jesus, whatever. It's not a wrong thing to see those things. It's not a wrong thing to be concerned about those things. But according to Galatians chapter five, we need to stop and ask ourselves the question, God, before I I go and speak into that situation, is there an area in my life that I'm missing that I should put this much energy into in my own walk with Jesus? Are there people that I'm confessing things to? Are there people who are praying for me? Are there people who are aware of these things in my life? Trying to help me become more like Jesus in the way that I want to try to help this person become more like Jesus. I'm going to leave these questions on the screen because here's what I want you to see. Here's what I've learned. If the answer to any one of these questions is no, then I've learned that I'm probably not God's person to have that conversation. And that when I'm motivated by love the sinner, hate the sin, when the answer to any one of these questions is no, they won't feel the love. They'll only feel the condemnation and the judgment. Here's what else I've learned. When in a situation where I feel like there's something going on in someone's life that I love and I care about, and the answer to all of these questions is yes, that I've learned that I am the person that God has called. Put me in coach. In a spirit of gentleness, after having spent much time in prayer and studying and reading God's word about how to confront people in sin, that I am the one that the Holy Spirit has chosen in this moment, in this season, in this person's life to speak into them So like the man in 1 Corinthians 5, his soul will be saved in the day of the Lord. Not necessarily from the terms of going to heaven or going to hell, but so they don't continue to live in this pattern of sin and reap the whirlwind that's gonna come from it. So what have we learned today? Love the sinner, hate the sin. It's a false statement made up of partial truths. That's why it's tricky. But I believe a more accurate depiction and a more careful handling of God's word would lead us as Jesus followers to love your neighbor, to hate your own sin, and then confront a fellow Christian. And if we would live that way, It would allow us to model what Jesus said would be the hallmark, would be the thing that would draw unbelievers to not look at us as Gandhi did and say, if it wasn't for the Christians, I would be a Christian. It would help us to realize what our greatest leverage is. It's not our opinions. It's not our judgment. This is gonna be controversial. Can I tell you that the greatest leverage you have as a Christian is not the truth that you hold in your hands every time you hold the Bible? The greatest leverage that we have in the lives of people who are close to us but far from God is love. But don't love the sinner and hate the sin. Love your neighbor. Hate your own sin. Then confront your fellow Christians. Let me ask where you are today in your relationship with Jesus. Perhaps you're here today and you got all kinds of questions about all this Jesus stuff. and Listen, I tell you this, I'm not here to judge. In fact, Jesus himself said in John chapter three that it wasn't his job to judge. He said in John chapter three, after the big famous verse, for God so loved, there it is, the leverage point, the whole world that he gave his own son, that anyone who would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. In the very next verse, Jesus paints it for us that he doesn't even come to judge. He said, because the Son of Man has not come to condemn or judge the world, but that through him the world could be saved. That's you, and that's me. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-816. Two zero three, one eight three five. Again, that's the word faith to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.